Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, um, Emerson Fursh, who's Emerson Fursh, who's joining um, from his home in Cedar City via Zoom. Welcome to the podcast, Emerson. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for the time. Will you tell our listeners, since you have a, a very unique first name and last name, will you tell our listeners how to spell both of those names and if there's a story behind either of those names? Uh, so Emerson's E-M-E-R-S-O-N, one M. Um, and then my last name is F-E-R-S-C-H. Uh, the first is, I think, German, Belgium, traced it as far back as to Austria. Um, my first name, Emerson, I'm actually named after my dad, whose first name was also Emerson, who his name came from my grandfather's best friend, who was Harry Emerson Fosdick, who you may be familiar with. He was a well-known theologian, I guess, back in the late or early 20th century, and he was a personal friend of my grandfather's. He, he was a Baptist minister in uh, New Hampshire. So that's where the Emerson comes from. <laughs> well, we're sure glad to have you on the podcast. By way of introduction, Emerson First is a recent release stake president in the East Long Beach area. Um, he moved from that area, lives in Cedar City. I became aware of Emerson um, when he invited me to speak at state conference. We And he... D- I talked about LGBTQ, but what Emerson or President First is did in that stake and was just to create Zion, a feeling that everybody is welcome in that stake. And we will talk about kind of two things in this podcast, Emerson's conversion story to the church, and then we'll talk about what he did as a stake president. Our joint prayers that if you're a local leader, a parent, or someone that's just trying to create Zion in your circle of influence, that the things that Emerson shares will give you um, principles that you can use in your area to help people connect with the gospel of Jesus Christ by creating more feeling of inclusion, acceptance, and support for everybody. Is that okay for an introduction? That's great. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Talk about your, just talk about your life before your church. Um, So the first thing I think is important is I wasn't raised in a home um, that practiced any act of religion. Um, I, you know, my, like I said, my grandfather was a minister, but my dad was raised Protestant. My mom was Roman Catholic, um, but we didn't, I think we might have gone to a Lutheran church a couple times growing up, but it wasn't a part of our life. You know, I wasn't daily prayer, um, wasn't a part of our life. Uh, you know, when, when we have worldly problems to solve, my dad was a psychoanalyst, but when we had worldly problems to solve. We go to the I Ching, which is the Chinese book of, I think, Proverbs or Fortunes or whatever, you throw, you know, a set of pennies three times, you come up with a hexagram and look up what you're, uh, how to solve your problem. <laughs> so um, that's kind of how I was, the home I was raised in. Um, both my parents were alcoholic. Uh, I eventually, you know, gave into uh, addiction myself. And I, I bring that up because uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't out there, as they say, out there for a long period of time. I mean, I started drinking and doing drugs when I was in college, right after I left, you know, went to St. Louis for school. And amazingly, I actually did pretty well um, in spite of everything, but dropped out after a couple of years and um, just 
you know, the mid 80s are a bit of a blur. Uh, you know, hung out a lot of seedy people, got into a lot of really dangerous situations, driving in blackouts, buying drugs off the streets. I mean, and, you know, I think about it now, it's like somebody else's life. Um, but the reason I think it's important is because I, I, I guess in the Book of Mormon, I've always connected with the, the sons of Mosiah, the vilest of sinners. Wow. And how, and you know, there's that scripture of the, about Moroni, about the very gates of hell would shake, you know, but the scripture after that holds Moroni up to the standard of the sons of Mosiah. They were such evil guys, and yet they say, they, you know, Moroni was like even unto the sons of Mosiah. And so that's kind of been my experience in terms of my relationship with God, because I was a bum and hurt a lot of people, did a lot of bad things, and yet was saved, for lack of a better way to put it. I was never, uh, God never gave up on me. And when I um, had a you know, moment of clarity that alcoholics and drug addicts talk about and reached out for help, I called uh, Cigna, the healthcare place I had through my work. I still had a job, <laughs> you know, so I was, I was a functional addict, I guess they say. And um, I called and you know, wanted to go see a, a therapist because I knew I didn't have any plans. My life was kind of a mess. And the lady started asking me these questions on the phone, you know, and there was this thing called the 20 questions that came out of John Hopkins University years ago. And if you answered yes to three of them, it meant you had an addiction problem. And I answered yes to 16. Wow. And um, Yeah. But and that was the miracle of it, because if it had been four or five, I could have probably rationalized that away. And, you know, well, you know, I'm not that bad. But uh, 16 was enough for me to listen to the lady. And she said, you need to come in and talk to somebody. And I did. And three nights later, I was sitting in a parking lot at a church in Granada Hills, getting ready to go to my first aid. And um, I remember sitting in my car thinking, what, you know, what am I doing here? And I went in, and it was a candlelight meeting where, you know, they, they put a candle on the table, lights go out, and there was a speaker. And Richard, as soon as I was sitting in that room, I knew I was in the right place. I didn't know why. I didn't know what I was feeling, um, but I was connected to something that I knew I wanted to hang on to. And, of course, I know now that was the Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit. That was, you know, just immersing me in warmth and, and, and forgiveness and hope because um, I had lost hope. I was always kind of, even as a little kid, you know, and I didn't grow up, like I said, in a perfect household. It certainly wasn't like the hymn books, you know, and, um, but I always kind of was a person that was optimistic, you know, somehow things are going to work it out. And um, I lost that. I lost that somewhere along that seven year period of time where I was out there in the darkness and you know and so um i found light i found light in AA, and that's what opened up my relationship with god and you know i can zoom through a lot of that but through um some very good men um that i met that sponsored me that really helped me grow up i learned the importance of, of prayer mm. i learned the importance of service um even you know donating my money you know i found i i all these things that I didn't think would ever happen for me, I found a career. I started to be able to have healthy relationships with people. I cleaned up the wreckage of my past. You know, I made amends to employers I stole money from. I mean, I went back and was willing to just, you know, repent. You know, with with uh, what's that word? Restitution. Cleaned it all up um, to the best I could. 
And so um, when I met my wife, Darcy, who was a member, um, you know, I remember I was actually scared because I, I was used to dating people that had problems, <laughs> baggage, you know, I, just so I was drawn to because I felt like that's kind of what I brought to the table. And she was like a healthy person, you know, she had, she was just like normal, right? You know, just a successful woman, had a great job, smart, self-respect, all these qualities that um, truthfully I wasn't really used to. <laughs> And um, she was a member of the church. And so uh, at the time, you know, I'd been very heavily involved in AA, four meetings a week, I, you know, uh -huh. which is like a calling. You know, I'd be the treasurer or the secretary or make the coffee or whatever. Um, I also took, uh, did panels, which is what you bring groups of uh, recovering alcoholics into um, uh, hospitals or recovery homes, or we used to even go to this lockdown place in Norwalk. You know, where literally people were like in lockdown ward and they couldn't get out. And um, so it was, you know, a lot of these things were were already in place before the church was presented to me. And um, you know, again, I'm kind of giving you the, the long short version, but um, I met my wife. We didn't really talk a lot about church. We just knew we had similar values. And um, you know, when she when I asked her to marry me, I knew she was the right one pretty, you know, early on. We were both older at that point too. We we're in our late thirties. Um she had to wait for me to get myself together. Um, she wanted to be married by the Mormon bishop. And so, uh, you know, I didn't have a fine, you know, whatever. I don't have my own bishop, so yours is as good as any, right? And um, so we met with him. Um, we, and what happened was she got tied up with her family. This was, I think, the week, the Wednesday before the Saturday where he did our, our wedding. And so I went because I didn't want to leave him hanging. You know, I couldn't call him. And so I went and showed up. And we had about an hour, he and I, to just talk. And um, he was just a normal guy, Jeff Perry. You know, in fact, you probably know that name. He'll probably come up later in our little story. But he um, he was a normal guy. He was a Cardinals fan, which we have that in common because, you know, I went to school in St. Louis. And my dad, I inherited that from him. But I just connected. And I shared with him a lot of what I just told you. And he didn't bat an eye. You know, there was no judgment. There was no, you know, give me the, the evil eye. None of that. He just, you know, was, hey, great, you're here. You know, it was just respect. And I felt safe and, and welcome. So uh, we got married. And then three months later, I remember calling up the sister missionaries. And um, I remember, I think, you know, at the time, I didn't realize that that wasn't something that happened a lot. You know, people calling, wanting them to come over and teach. So they were a little surprised. And, uh, June of 99, about, I guess, two months after we got married, I was baptized. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, from there, uh, I, you know, I got a calling the elders form. I got called the elders form president about, I think I was a member a year and a half. Then I got called to be a bishop in the 11th ward, which is no longer around. That was at about four and a half years as a member. And then the boundaries changed, and I served two more years as a bishop in the 10th ward. Um, and then executive secretary until I had the last assignment I had. As stick president of the Long Beach East State. Yep. So how, thanks for just being honest with us and sharing about, I think, and being vulnerable just with your pre-church life and the road you walked. And now I've never really heard that. And now I sort of better understand why everybody in your stake, at least everybody I'm aware of, felt really safe talking to you um, because of the, of the way Jeff Perry um, treated you when you opened up about your past and how healing and, and 
compassionate he was. And just, I think he would have done that naturally knowing you, but having that example of a LDS leader that treated you that way, that I've noticed you seem to be doing that for everybody else. And to me, the atonement's kind of theoretical sometimes, Emerson, but I think it's all it's all real for all of us, but maybe for someone that's just had your experiences pre-church, it becomes even more real, uh, being in those dark, hopeless spaces. And that contrast between darkness and light is very real in your life. And I would think that, that your ability to sort of, from a practical standpoint, connect people with the same healing feeling you felt with the atonement as part of your ministry. Does that resonate with you, just that this is not theoretical for you? This is like life-changing what happened to you, and you then can help others take advantage of the same blessings? For sure. Um, I mean, the, the gift for me, and I, and I assume everybody has their moment one way or the other, because um, it, it's personal how the Lord connects with us through the Spirit. Um, but I absolutely have no doubt. I cannot look at the life I live today with, you know, having been self-employed for 25 years, you know, I managed close to $200 million of, of you know, people's hard-earned money. Um, you know, I've served as, a, in, as an elected official in Signal Hill as a treasurer for almost uh, three, three terms before we moved. You know, I managed, you know, they had, I handled their portfolio. Um, and I'm not sharing, I'm just, the point is, is how do you go from this, this guy, the way I was, you know, driving up and down the streets up by LAX, you know, looking for people selling dime bags on the street to these, this, this life, you know, being a father, you know, being able to be in a healthy marriage with a healthy woman, hold, you know, important positions in church. So I cannot deny the hand of God. I can't take credit for any of it because it's clear to me, my own thinking and my own choices didn't get me very far. And God went in and plucked me out. He didn't give up on me. And um, so yeah, and so my thought is, is because I'm nothing special, so if he'll do that for me, <laughs> you know, he'll do it for anybody. He loves all of us. He loves all of us, no matter our choices. They, he just, he knows who we are, and he knows our heart, and that's the only thing I can think of. He, he must have known at some point, I figured it out before I killed myself, <laughs> and the chances and, and, and things would line up, and that's pretty much how it's been. That's been sort of the tone that was set you know, before I became a member, it was just trusting, trusting God, surrender, you know, all these AA principles, you know, let go and let God, and, you know, you see these bumper stickers, you know, surrender, and all these things, that's just, it became a foundation, which played, actually transferred and played really well in, in leadership roles, because there was a lot of pain, as you know, probably better than I do, um, out there, you know, people sit, in church and in, the, in the, their pews and everybody, you know, looks good and has the right smile on their face a lot of the times. But, um, you know, I learned early on as a bishop, there's just a lot of pain and a lot of pain people typically have a hard time talking about because they somehow there's this thing in church sometimes where people think that, you know, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing everything right, things shouldn't happen. And if you know, something's happening, then maybe I'm not doing everything right. And, you know, which is, just completely, you know, God isn't a punishing God. I mean, life is life and we have free agency and we're subject to the free agency of others and, you know, it has no bearing on. God knows our heart. That doesn't mean it's not going to rain sometimes, you know, for us. 
don't know. Does that sort of... It makes a lot of sense. And it just seems like these experiences just opened the door for the ministry you had that I became connected with when you served as stick president. Go back to, if you can, think about when you were called a stick president. Um, is this... a what, If I had met you that night as you were set apart and kind of reflective on what you wanted to accomplish in the stake... And then what I kind of saw through you, what you did and getting to know people in your stake, this feeling of creating Zion, is that what you, was that on your radar map um, when you were first called or did that come gradual in your ministry? That came a year before I got called. Talk about that. So I mentioned actually I dropped out of college um, <laughs> and had gone through, but anyway, I was basically actually back enrolled at St. Louis University, which is where I went for two years. Um, I had nightmares over the years of, of, I'd find myself in a dream back in school, but in my dream thinking, I can't be here, I've got a family, and I've got work. It haunted me. Um, and so I went back, and I was actually finishing up my undergrad. And I had a class called Spirituality and Leadership. And it was just, it was studying the Jesuits, which was an, it was an amazing class because there's a lot of parallels, you know, they, I mean, Jesuit means Society of Jesus, and, and their whole, um, uh, I guess, mission statement was save, help souls, right? This open-ended, that's it. And I loved it. I was drawn to it because these, these guys were traveling in boats going all over the country, you know, the world, not knowing what the plan was. It was just this trusting. And eventually they settled into, you know, these educational institutions and kind of their, their niche. But um, it inspired me. And then the final project we had to write was, um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it came to me. I put a presentation together about building Zion. That was my final, you know, thing for the class. And, and that's when it sunk in. And then, you know, as, as President Alstrom's term started running out and I was serving as human, you know, he was the executive secretary, um, these feelings were coming to my mind. I had an idea, truthfully, when I was called because my, my leadership trajectory in church has been pretty linear, you know, you know just kind of unique for some, especially as a convert and all, but it just seemed like I was being prepared. And so I took a lot of notes, worked out a lot of things that came to my mind over that four-year period of time. But it was that last year um, that it was clear to me I needed to be ready. And, you know, you go through that whole thing about, well, you know, you don't want to aspire for the assignment. But on the other hand, you know, I knew myself well enough to know what I was feeling was real. And so it was a burden. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I knew building, I didn't know what that meant per se. That became clear pretty quickly after I started to serve. But I knew that being united, and I got to share this because it just came to my mind, but no, there's, a, there's an elder Robert Packer. I don't know what he's doing now. I think he still went to serve a mission and he's involved with something to do with public affairs or communications in California for that key area. He came out and spoke at a state conference, I think it was in 2013, the year before I got called. And he had a Saturday night session where he, did, he had no plan. <laughs> And he just opened it up to the membership to start talking. And, and I was shocked because people, including a previous state president, another woman I know from our ward, they, everybody started opening up about how they didn't feel like they were doing enough and how they didn't feel like they were good enough. And I just, it was like cathartic because it was like people had all this stuff and he just created an, an environment where people could just lay it out there. He just, it was a gift. 
And I never forgot that because I'm thinking, gosh, we need more of this. We need more of this honesty. We need more of this ability for people just to be themselves. How do you bear another person's burden when you don't even know what it is, right? So that impressed me. And so that was all part of this thing. Say his, name, say his name again for our listeners. Oh, it was Robert Packer. Okay, Robert and Packer. Great. And that was a blessing of my calling as executive secretary because I got to sit in and, and meet a lot of the visiting authorities. And um, he just stood out because honestly, I mean, everybody's different, but oftentimes I felt um, very uh, stifled. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it was just, you know, I just felt, you know, he just was a breath of fresh air. Maybe I should just leave it at that, you know, and, and I appreciated his personality and the way he was able to effectively unite a state over a weekend. It was just, it was him, and I, he connect, I connected to that. So that all kind of carried in. So when I got called, um, I remember it was, you know, one of those days you don't forget in life. Um, you know, I, my interview wasn't kind of what I expected. It was uh, Elder Piper and this Elder Frost who was from Arizona. Elder Frost was more of the touchy-feely guy and Elder Piper, you know, he's pretty much all business. And so I had my interview and it wasn't anything particular. It wasn't like, you know, I felt this confirmation. I remember texting Darcy and I'm sitting in high council and I was like, dude, no, maybe I was just completely off base. And, and then when they finally told me to call her and, you know, all these things I've been feeling were coming to truth. Um, you know, that, that was just one of those moments. And so, um, anyway, but I, I knew I was prepared. I love the history of that. And I love your shout out to your dear wife, Darcy, who I've met a couple of times and she's great. And what a great team you make. I just want you to start talking about just creating then Zion in your stake. Um, obviously we talk a lot about LGBTQ in this podcast and there's a couple of, um, podcast we've done with Scott Osmond, episode 162, and Mike Seacrest, 168. I encourage our listeners, after listening to this podcast, if you haven't, we're going to talk about Scott and Michael in this podcast. Please listen to those two episodes for the full story and the impact of President Fersh in their life and where they are with the church right now because of President Fersh and the feeling of belonging that they feel there, which is what Elder Ballard asked us to do in last general conference, create more of a feeling of belonging, which I think is a sister goal to creating Zion. That's kind of, you know, part of creating belonging. But just talk wherever you want to go next. Um, okay. So two points that I definitely I don't want to forget. I'm hoping you all hang on to them for me if I get derailed. Um, one is the spirit, the wall of the spirit. Um, because that's, I think, I'm a big, um, I'm the big Robert Kennedy fan. He's probably, if you ask me who my hero is, you know, moral hero, he's the guy. And he talked about moral courage. And, and I just want to share this with you real quick. Few men are willing to brave the disapproval of their peers, the censure of their colleagues, the wrath of their society. Moral courage is a rare commodity and bravery in battle with great intelligence. Yet it is the one essential, vital quality for those who seek to change the world that yields most painfully to change. And I bring that up because, honestly, Richard, nothing that we did was any pre-like agenda. Was nothing I had in my mind. It was simply create Zion, and the spirit opened the doors. Because the one thing I did bring to the table is I wasn't afraid follow it um i don't 
I've never came, I've never been burdened by the traditions of our fathers, so to speak, when it comes to church. Um, I question everything. Um, and I honestly think that's healthy. At least it, it, it works for me. Um, but I also want to point out that this is what I learned about keys because none of this, this was all following counsel. <laughs> you know, and, and you brought up a point, I think, before we got into our discussion about the leaders not wanting to tell people how to do things. Um, some people I've learned think keys are simply you're set apart, you're given these keys, and you basically sort of follow orders and stick to the narrative and, you know, keep doing the same thing that's always been done you know don't step out of line because you'll get ahead of the brethren and i've never understood that get ahead of the brethren because i was set apart with key if, if it didn't matter if key if all it was as a matter of just you know telling the line so to speak what different why would i be called than anybody else it wouldn't matter we obviously in callings get blessed we learn we grow but we also bring something to the table i'm convinced um my role was to do exactly what i did the, the spirit open these doors and i want to hopefully that'll come out through, as i'll share with you kind of how all this went um i thought building zion was really just uniting our state my view was very small you know we had all these little wards we had a couple of culture wards which you know really i don't think we have culture wards language ward spanish branch we had a cambodian ward you know we had the orange county ward which is los alamitos which i was in and you know they there was sort of this separation from the long beach ward everybody had their little fights you know and it was not a united group and so the first task at hand was to, to break down this this were wards of zion perception that can create you know more of a hey we're a stake of zion and so um a lot of that had to do with the state conferences which um quite frankly were modeled after AA meetings. Uh, you know, cool. people sharing honestly. I mean, I'll never forget the first one of these open meetings we did. And, and it was always set a tone. It was just to exactly as you said, create a place where people could be themselves. You know, not feel like, you know, I had a guy, a long-term member come to me once after one of our meetings and say, you know, it's nice not leaving the state conference feeling like I don't measure up. I mean, we're talking about the church, you know, the savior. That should be inspiring and uplifting, not making people feel like they, you know, they're not doing enough or they're, they're worthless, that they're not earning their way, climbing up Jacob's ladder to heaven. I mean, none of that, that doesn't make any sense. So I had a brother speak about his conversion, how he resisted the Book of Mormon, resisted the Book of Mormon. I had a woman talk about being divorced after being sealed in the temple. Um, gosh, you know, we had another gal that was supposed to talk about breaking off her engagement. She was a YSA and ended up telling me, you know, as she walked up to the podium before the meeting started, I've been inspired to speak about something else. I'm like, uh-oh. And she talked about getting through a pornography addiction before she went on her mission, a female. Wow. And, the, and, you know, depression, anxiety, we've had everybody just spoke about, you know, one lady who was in an auto accident was disabled, you know, from the neck down. I mean, we had... Um, People just share life, but not just about the problems, but how their faith carried them through. In fact, I remember the first night we did this, one guy who was like the fourth or fifth speaker said, you know, he got up there before he started talking, he was exhausted. Because <laughs> it was emotionally, you know, people weren't used to it. But I'll tell you, the other thing was, <clears throat> those meetings, people from other states started to come. Um, people would stay afterwards you know the guy would be the, the tech guy would be blinking the lights off and finally shutting them off to get everybody out and of course you came that's when mike secrets gave his um 
beautiful talk that he came out over the pulpit. Um, but the beginning of it was setting a tone that, you know, we need to be open. We need to, to love each other and accept each other and quit putting up these, these, um, this image that we're all thinking, you know, this blueprint, perfect life that we're all feel like we're supposed to be living up to that really nobody's life is like that. It's kind of an illusion. Um, from there, it, the, the whole idea of Zion opened up. We got counsel about building up our, you know, part of the time public affairs uh, auxiliary and getting involved with the community. And they kind of had a list of, um, list of different things you could do, whether it's reaching out to the Hispanic community or local politicians um, or other faiths, you know, just all, kind of a laundry list of stuff. And um, it, it, all of a sudden that, that little thing, that council got me to realize, oh my gosh, Zion isn't just our wards, it's not our state, it's our whole community. And so I told Lori Pollard, who was called to be our public affairs director, um, go out and see if you can connect with a Black Baptist church. Wow. That was just popped into my head. That's what I told her. And two phone calls later, she connects with um, the First Lady Russell over at Temple Baptist Church, who just, and, and again, this there's no coincidences. So they just, they do this, they were doing this backpack project every year, and their sponsor had just backed out, right? So Lori calls her just as they lost the sponsor and she's scrambling on figuring out how they're gonna do the backpack project. And it just so happened that her husband, Tori, who's the uh, pastor, had just been out to a, I don't know, I call it a due diligence trip. He'd been out with a, a few other um, Baptist church leaders out to Salt Lake and gotten a tour of the, um, the welfare center, the family history center. You know, they do these kind of outreach tours. Out of anybody we could have picked, right? She calls these guys who not only have a need, but also who have their hearts soft towards us. And I mean, it was, you can't plan this. So we went in, I met with them. I even shared a scripture out of Doctrine and Covenants that talked about Zion and unity and celestial principle. And, you know, he just, he just said right off the bat, look, you know, I know we may have doctrinal differences, but there's bigger fish to fry. You know, and, and basically the idea was we got more in common than we don't. We formed a friendship. We ended up stepping in and helping them out with the backpack project. And as the years went by, 200 backpacks became close to 3,000 three or four years later. You know, with with members who set up book book like a book giveaway thing along with that. Um, so Tori was that that was the opening of all this. And like I said, the spirit then just started opening doors. He introduced me to Pastor Nichols, who is a buddy of his from uh, Garden of Praise Christian Fellowship, which is an evangelical church in Carson. And he says, hey, look, you know, my friend's been wanting me to go up and go up to Skid Row with him at midnight. You know, will you go with me? Why? Yeah, why not? So I go up, I meet Pastor Nichols, and he, uh, he calls me his twin, you know. <laughs> He's another black minister. You know, he can sing, he's got a lot of talent, I don't have, but we're, we're twins in heart, it's kind of a joke. Um, he and I connected right off the bat. And so I went up to Skid Row with this group, another couple of churches met us up there, and again, 12 midnight, we're walking around LA, and I mean, it was bad then, it's worse now, but we're handing water, we're handing resources, you know, food, whatever, to people right in their tents, marching up and down, you know, fifth and central. And it just struck me, it's like, my gosh, this is exactly what we need in our state to really soften some hearts. 
because it's one thing to just drop off, you know, something at the Salvation Army or, you know, leave, you know, give food to some organization that distributes it. It's another thing to go eyeball eyeball with people who are suffering. And so I started calling it Bishop's Training, and I started dragging up the different, you know, our different leadership from each of the wards up there. Um, and then pretty soon, other people wanted to start coming. And, and before you know it, we became partners with Garden of Praise and were regular contributors of blankets. We, uh, you know, I used to always get hygiene kits. You know, everybody kind of found their little niche. Eventually, Jeff Perry, guy's great. He started having people who were afraid to go up would meet early and bag up lunches and put food together. You know, so everybody was getting involved. We had inactive members that, you know, spouses who didn't, you know, were just weren't active in church, but that wanted to come out and do this. Um, I had, you know, members from other YSA awards who would just, want, or, or people who were investigating, they'd go up. You know, it's one thing to sit in Sunday school and just, you know, hear a lesson and talk about, like, you know, theory about what we should be doing all that. But when you get out there and actually do it, that's how your heart changes. And so that opened the door to the homeless. And then we had a state conference. Um, I don't know when it was, maybe. I can't remember now the dates. But uh, the, um, the challenge to the, to the members was when you meet a homeless person, ask them their name. Ask them their name. And I started getting these emails from people with all these stories about how, you know, it, it transformed the homeless guy at the corner when you get off the freeway to, you know, Lamont or Jane or, you know, Larry in front of the Alpha Bay. You know, I mean, everybody all of a sudden became a person and they had a story and it transformed people. And um, because all this, you know, people became a person, they became human. And once you, sorry, once you get rid of that wall of indifference and, th and that person's a person to you, you, you it, that changes your heart. You can't ignore them anymore. And so that was a little step. You know, you see how this is all building. You know why? Because I met Tori, because Lori took a phone call from some inspiration I got. She got inspired, called the right church, who then had a friend who got us into the homeless. You know, just boom, 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 boom. Then we got involved in the city. You know, we started doing homeless counts. Um, we met some contacts there who pulled us into the school system. And so then we started tutoring at uh, one school and then at another school, Willard. And that meeting was in particular, um, particularly interesting because the principal was very hard to get through. We finally met with her. She talked about the trauma that kids um, in her particular area, low-income area, and how kids would come to school you know, having been told by their dad that, you know, when they come home, they're going to murder their mother while they were at school. I mean, just bad things. You know, these poor little kids were often just traumatized. And she said, we need to bring God to this campus. You know, not like we're going to preach, but she needed the spirit. And so we had members, my wife was one of them, um, and a number of others who went and started tutoring or, or helping the assist uh, through the teacher at this uh, elementary school. And, um, you know, we had to go through a bunch of hoops, getting TB tested. This is, of course, before COVID and everything. But the point of it was, is through a lot of persistence, we got in and became very valuable to the Long Beach Unified School District, you know, helping out these teachers who just didn't attend each children. And so that was another thing. Again, these doors just opened. Um, and that was, and so, you know, I could go on and on, but um, this eventually, you know, started, you can see there was a shift. There was a shift in the way people were viewing others. And the other thing of it was, and I heard this from a lot of people, is they've been thirsty, you know, to be a part of a church that actually got involved in the community. 
and you know, it became clear and clear to me that as we got more enmeshed in, with the people around us, that um, it was clear we had a responsibility for this. We absolutely, you know, this isn't just a great idea. This is what it means to be uh, a disciple of Christ. You know, it's even above church at this point. I mean, it's it's you know, the two great commandments: love God and love your neighbor. And the church is set up in such a perfect way um, because you know you don't have paid ministers. You, you have leadership. You know, it's 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 sustainable. And so I'm gone now, but you still have people who are completely, you know, involved and in, in it's taken on a life of itself. Um, then I guess to get to the LGBTQ part of it, you know, because again, you had to open your hearts to the homeless folks. You know, it was just a process. And of course, people sharing their 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 stories about their lives that you know and all their personal things that have happened. So you you can see a couple of two, three years of this. Um my now, wife then before I shift there, I just for our listeners, as you're writing down notes, just the things that Emerson said that really touched me right there is just the recognition, the the realization with that minister from the other church, we have doctrinal differences, but we have bigger fish to fry. You said that so quickly, but that's so powerful. And I just think our heavenly parents like that. When we go to the sort of the common ground, we're all part of the same human family. And if we just stop at doctrinal differences and then we lose the ability to do what you, you did and that other church did, because there are bigger fish to fry, there are real significant problems. And if we just create boundaries at doctrinal differences, we're never going to solve those problems. I love what you said about eyeball to eyeball, you know, and that that gets you out of the theoretical. And when and I love what you said about just getting to know the name of a homeless person, how important a name is to somebody. And just this, you also talked about the wall of indifference comes down when you get to know people. And the benefit then to you and your stake members and to me, because I've seen it firsthand, is our heart changes. And isn't that what we're the gospel of Jesus Christ is trying to help us do is change our hearts um, as part of mortality to become more loving, more Christ-like, more com compassionate, have you more humility, and then you're in a position to bear and help other people. But you have to do the things that you're having your stake do, because you're right, you can't just do that sitting in a Sunday school class. That can give you the foundational doctrinal principles, but then you've got to go put it into action. And this is sort of like, you know, your stake and what you're doing is sort of putting it into action and then seeing the fruits of the change of hearts in all of our lives as we're part of this type of service. So now just keep going forward. Uh, yeah, and, and one other point on, on that, I'm glad you brought that up about Pastor Russell when you said that, because the other thing that he brought up a number of times was, because you know, there's been a lot of, you know, in the last five, six, seven years, a lot of racial tension. And our friendship with, the, with, with both these other churches kind of came, it wasn't forced. You know, it was just natural. We had a general affection for each other. You know, part of the fun with going up to Skid Row was, um, saying prayers with garden praise, you know, their prayers are different than ours. You know, we had all held hands in a circle and people will, you know, kind of affirm as you, as the prayer is going on, you know, amen and hallelujah, you know, it's just different and it was great. Um, and so, but Pastor Russell mentioned, because he says, once the racial tension started up again, he goes, I start getting calls from, you know, white churches wanting to sort of force these relationships and ours just happened. That's you know, cool. again, the spirit, just, it, it was just natural. 
And so there wasn't this forcing, it was a genuine affection that the members had for each other. Um, so along as, as you know, and I'm not sure where it fits in, but part of this, I knew it, the, the, the thing was coming to my mind that you know I needed to also address the LGBT. Q community, but again, I was thinking community-wise. I wasn't thinking in terms of ward and state. I wasn't really aware, you know. I, I guess I was, but I didn't really think about. It. I was thinking more about mending fences after the whole Prop Eight, because there was a lot of fractured relationships, and just you know, Long Beach in particular. Um, you know, it was just it left a bad taste in everybody's mouth, I suppose. Um, and so I reached out to uh, a gentleman at one of the uh, local uh, LGBT centers and. He was very kind, but could never get any follow-up with that. And I'm thinking maybe, you know, I thought, oh, geez, you know, here I am um, showing up at his doorstep, like, okay, I'm ready to go. But, you know, maybe he wasn't, you know, and I didn't really think about that at first. And, um, the previous state president had two sons that came out. And so- President Ulstrom. Yeah. He's, and you probably, you know that, you know the Yeah, Ulstrom. what a great family. Oh, they're, they're awesome. And, and so uh, I had Shar agreed to give a talk on a Sunday, at a Sunday session of conference. You know, again, this is, you know, credible speaker, prominent in the state, you know, I mean, if you're going to have somebody open the door to that, that's the perfect situation. And so she was willing and she gave a beautiful talk, you know, she, and I remember, you know, the essence of it was, you know, I, I, I have to, my job is to love my son. I don't have all the answers. You know, she went through a lot about, you know, concern. I'm sure you've experienced it. People have a lot of concern for the, the well-being of their eternal family, which I think personally that's wrong. People shouldn't have to feel that way. They shouldn't be put in a position to pick between church and, and their family. You know, it, it, we don't we, we know we know, but there's a lot we don't know. And so, but she gave this beautiful talk and it opened the door. But then, you know, we kind of moved on with some things. And then my wife, brilliant, she's, you know, it's, it's definitely a partnership in these colonies. Um, we were part of this California Conference for Equality and Justice, CCJ, which is a, a kind of a uh, human, uh, I guess, what is it, human relations organization in Long Beach. They try to, their goal, at least it used to be, they've shifted now, but they were really there to, to ensure that there was no discrimination, you know, in, in terms of uh, gender, uh, in terms of religion, race. And the part, you know, the fact that they included religion in that is one of the reasons why we were involved, because you don't see a lot of that, you know. Really, you know, that's not part of uh, the mission statement of these types of organizations generally. And so, um, they they were having speakers come. A woman who you met, Marcia, and her son Aiden, Azumi. Um, and Darcy said, you know, you should sponsor them through my work. Um, and I thought. I trusted her on it. It didn't really resonate per se, but I thought, well, why not? You know, and so I did. You know, my firm, my, I own my own financial planning firm, Bates, we capital investment advisors sponsored um, the Martian aid to speak. And so part of that, you get to meet the, the people but the night before, you know, have dinner. And so Aiden was very standoffish, and I didn't know why at the time, but I learned pretty quickly afterwards why. But Marcia, as you know, she's just really a uh, I love her. She's just an awesome woman. She's you know you can't not like her. She just wears her heart on her sleeve. And we started talking. And she was trying to get in to um, faith groups to, to help you know teach. It wasn't about you know convincing. It was just to educate people on transgender and, and what that's all about. So we learned from her. We kind of 
informally agreed that, you know, maybe there's something we could do together. And so they spoke the next morning in front of a thousand people at this breakfast in Long Beach. I mean, anybody who's anybody's there. And the thing that got me, and this is, um, I never share this, but it just cuts you your core. Um, they each kind of concluded, they only had 20 minutes to talk, but they each concluded their little, you know, their presentation with the most memorable thing that had happened, um, you know, what they learned through this journey. And Marsha, I think it was just getting a hug from her son, finally, you know. Um, and for Aiden, his, his defining moment through all this was when he went to his church leader, when he was still a girl, thinking he was lesbian, and came out, and the church leader, and it wasn't LDS church, um, it was another faith, um, not that that really matters, uh, but he was told he didn't have a place there. He was kicked out, he was cast out. And um, it was at that point where I just thought, you know what, that's just wrong. I don't care about any, that's just wrong. Jesus would not do that. The Jesus that is our symbol of our church, right? Our, 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 the Christus, the open arms. He's not holding a clipboard. He's not saying, well, okay, you know, there's, there's, you don't, you know, you don't have to wait a year because this restriction, none of that. that that's not the Christ. He, he wouldn't cast him out. And so that's when all of a sudden I changed. Um, my heart was broken for him. And um, then I heard some other stories and I started listening to some different podcasts. I hadn't, I hadn't, he hadn't met yet about just some things that just didn't seem right to me. And then all of a sudden I realized, um, you know, we, we've got to, I, the idea that we had a problem within the church became more prevalent. You know, I know this is probably, you know, a lot of people like yourself from where this longer, for whatever reason, I just wasn't tuned into it, but I became tuned into it. And um, so I thought, okay, you know, I, Marsha, I, 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 you know, again, one of these things just kind of fell into our lap. The next indicated step of what we do, God, well, I want you to have them come and, and speak to your leaders, Marsha and Aiden. So I, we met with Marsha on a Sunday, me and a few soft-hearted people in the stake, you know, went through some things, um, and we agreed to take a risk. Um, one of the challenges was they normally get paid for their time, and, you know, we don't pay for speakers, and I, I had to tell her that, and it was almost the point where I was hoping that would be a deal breaker because I was losing sleep over this. You know, I invited bishops, elder school presidents, Relief Society presidents, a few other members that I thought would be supportive because I wanted it to be a, a good environment for them. And meanwhile, on their side of the, the, the desk, they're getting, you know, their friends are saying, look, you're getting set up. You don't want to go there. These people can't be trusted. And so I finally said, look, I'll buy some books through my company. I'll buy you some books, and you know, to, to, to cover your time from driving down to Pasadena, down to Orange County. Um, and they said, fine, you know. And so they showed up. They took a risk. I took a risk. And um, they shared their story slides, the whole presentation they did at CCJ with, you know, Aiden as a girl, Aiden now, her whole story. Um, our members, they were so loving and kind. Um, there wasn't a dry eye in the room, really. And, and I had the number of long-term members come up to me saying, this is the most spiritual meeting I've ever been involved with in church in my life. And um, I gave him a little CTR band, kind of because he hadn't used to wear a, what would Jesus do and got rid of it when he was going out of church. And, at the end of that night, and you'll know what this means, um, as I was, you know, saying, thanking them and giving them hugs and thanking them for their time, Aiden says, I want you to know you're a member of my tribe. And um, what a compliment. I, I just, you know, 
I didn't know how significant that was at the time until some time had passed, but I, you know, and he and I still stay in contact, you know, um, as Marsha, in fact, she did a, a, a second version of her book and she actually described this meeting that night in her book, um, which is kind of cool. So it's been memorialized, I guess you'd say. Um, but that, I, you know, so that gave me hope, you know, and it's kind of like that parable of the, the boy, the, what is it, the kernel, the blade, the corn, you know, the one that, uh, Christ taught, which has a number of meanings. A lot of times people just basically say, well, you know, it's this effectively the Lord takes care of everything. The farmer sleeps and the miracle happens and the seed grows into corn. Um, but the thing of that is, is one thing I've learned is we still have a responsibility to till that soil, to, you know, to do what we can to water that, make sure that, you know, the weeds aren't growing in there so those seeds have a fighting chance. And I think that's the thing I learned from all this is we can't always you know, get up in, you know, the same three days a week until the same part of that garden, you know, you got to do it differently. You have to be willing to try and do different things. And so that's kind of how all this evolved is, is um, I realized our steak wasn't a little seed, that our steak was ready to become a, a, a full-grown corn, at least in this respect. Um, and then, of course, as the Lord works, you know, I'm, I'm you know, ready to go. And Don Crute, my executive secretary, runs into Mike Sechrist at the Trader Joe's. Now just, I haven't seen him and I don't know. Go ahead. Before we talk about Mike Sechrist, I just want our yeah. listeners, before we move on from Marsha and Aiden, they were on episode 166. So if you want to hear more of their story, you could refer to one episode 166. So now let's go to your, let's go next. Yeah, and again, spirit, um, guiding this whole thing. You can't make this stuff up. And, and also, too, I want to just make sure, because during somewhere during this time, I was at a meeting with um, up in L.A. with Elder Ballard and Elder Razban, and they talked about reactivating Melchizedek priesthood holders. And, um, you know, that was, this, that, was a, that was the focus, that we needed to go back out and find these brothers and their families and bring them back to church. Well... The kind of the, the standard thinking, as I gathered from some of my peers, was, you know, okay, you go through the list, who are your inactives, you know, and pray and see whose name, you know, is more prominent, you go out and see them. Um, but there was a bigger, a bigger issue, um, and to me, is everybody has a reason why they're not coming back to church, and as your brother's book pointed out, it's got nothing to do with being offended. You know, that's, that's not the reason why people don't come, is they're not connecting for one reason or another, there's no value there, they don't feel like they have a place. And so to me, the real issue was, and, and this was really, again, talking to my wife, and she kind of opened my mind to this, is, you know, we got to create a place where people feel like they can belong here. And so that was kind of an underlying theme of all this was, you know, what are people coming back to? You know, this is, it, it, I, I'm digressing, but I think this is important. Is I was, you know, I was, as once I was released, we, you know, we'd already sold our house and, and I was ready to, you know, move here. And I was going through some old stuff I'd say when I was a bishop back in 11th Ward. So this is 15 years ago. And I found these charts of, um, you know, grow, you know, you know, sacrament attendance and goal, goal charts. You know, I happen to say this. I have no idea why. Sacrament attendance meeting, you know, uh, perspective, you know, all the usual stuff, right? And I started thinking, my gosh, you know, 15 years later, we're still doing the same thing. You know, it's changed names. It went from, you know, whatever it was then to, you know, award goals to key indicators to real growth, you know. We've got all these names, but it's the same thing over and over and over again. And everybody wonders why, you know, things don't change. And again, again, I'm not trying to be critical because to me, you know, Luke 137, for with God, nothing should be impossible. We got to be willing to just listen 
because I'm telling you, if there's one thing I learned from my calling in our state is that the Lord works very fast if we listen. Um, wow, what a statement. I no, agree. He, he did. Like I said, so that kind of segues into Mike's secret. So we've got this Melchizedek priesthood thing rolling around in my head. You know, what's, what, what are we bringing these brothers to? Then I realized, you know, we've got a lot of inactive gay brothers who serve our missions who aren't here. And then Mike falls into the lap. Don Cruz calls him up. You're never going to believe this. You know, I ran into this guy. I know, you know, I haven't seen him for 30 years, whatever, you know, 20 years. And, you know, we went to the same state together, same ward together when we were growing up in Calgary. You got to talk to him. So I call him in and I know you know Mike really well. That's how he introduced you and I that one time up in El Segundo when you came out. And um, we had an honest conversation. And I didn't try to change him. He didn't try to change me. And we just mutual trust and respect from the beginning. And um, I realized, you know, gosh, he, he's, he's a great emissary as a gay member of the church. You know, he's, he, he, he has honest experiences. He doesn't have an ax to grind. Um, and his, his is a story, you know. I, he, he's, you know, if you're looking for the perfect person to speak, you know, he's a doctor, you know, he's well-spoken. I mean, Mike's great. And um, then he introduced me to you and, and um, it just was clear. Mike, you know, I asked him if he'd speak at state conference, and I know that was a huge ask. Um, and of course, you know, you were gracious enough to come out too to speak on Sunday because I figured, you know, uh, as I told you before, you know, maybe maybe the young, the millennial guy coming out over the pulpit's a big dose, but uh, you know, we'll bring in a, a, a guy, an older gentleman who's been a bishop from Utah to kind of you know tie it up, bookend it on the other side, so people don't think I'm you know going nuts here. But it was a great weekend, you know. It was beautiful. I'd love I mean, to. I'd love to read from my book. Um, just my words. This is on page two hundred one of Listen, Learn, and Love: Embracing LGBTQ Latter Day Saints. So it's a couple of paragraphs. Listeners, hang in with me. One of the best examples I've seen of following Sister McConkie's counsel, and her counsel was the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't marginalize people. People marginalize people, and we need to fix that occurred at a state conference in Long Beach East Stake in January of 2019. In the Saturday night adult session, Stake President Emerson first invited Michael Seacrest, an interventional radiologist and gay member of Stake, to share his journey. He wanted Michael to speak because, in the President's word, he desired to create Zion, where no one felt marginalized, where all members felt valued and welcome. As I sat in the congregation, I watched Michael on the stand next to the Stake President. President C, President First, sensing Michael was nervous since he was about to come out as gay to the entire stake, traded seats with his counselors to sit by Michael. That simple act of kindness brought tears to my eyes. I thought that is what the Savior would do. After Michael's powerful talk, when he came out gay, when he came out to the entire stake, he began walking back to a seat. President First got up to give his concluding remarks, and as these two men Passed one another on the stand, President First stopped and gave Michael a big hug. Not a polite handshake, but a huge hug. I thought of the stake members witnessing that hug. If they needed to open up to the leader, they would know President First is a loving and safe person to help them. If I were a local leader in that stake, I would see President First's example as a way to better minister to my ward members. After the meeting, I was pleased to see a long line of stake members eager to speak to Michael for his remarks. I wish every LGBT Latter-day Saint could have that kind of experience in their stake. 
And Michael shared more of that on episode 168. That was kind of my window into that evening. I uh, will never forget that evening and what you did for Michael and his brave talk and the feeling of belonging that you're talking about that that created for Michael. Not only belonging, but that his contributions would help your steak become a better steak. It's not just that he felt welcome, but he actually felt needed. Um, not as and part of being needed was just his journey as a gay Latter-day Saint, that you actually needed that perspective in your stake. So I'll send it back to you to keep sharing. But I oh. remember the next day speaking your stake, and all the speakers were just, you know, people, you were just, it wasn't just LGBTQ. It was, you know, the, I can't remember all the speakers, but all, every speaker, and I think you may have had a member, uh, a person speak that wasn't even a member of the church at that meeting or a different one, maybe not. But no, I think you were just trying to create this feeling of, of Zion. And I think we recognize that you have priesthood keys, not just for the members and at least, you know, for everybody. Um, it's not just for those that are walking in the doors of the church. You have responsibility for thousands of people in that geographic area. Um, no, and that was, you know, I, I asked a lot of people, I asked a lot of people um, in asking them to bear their soul, you know, before everybody, particularly when so many have grown up thinking that this isn't what you do at church. Yeah, there <laughs> was know, a divorced is, woman that spoke that. I'm trying, my mind's going back to that meeting. There were a lot of people that spoke that weren't on well, the normal checklist path. No, and that was intentional. I mean, I just, you know, like I said, I knew what I was called to do. And I ran into opposition. I mean, I can tell you, I, I, I don't know, maybe I don't need to go into it, but I've had people I've served with intimately with me go over my head in complaints to the area president and questioning my testimony. I mean, you know, you don't go through, it's like, uh, again, Robert Kennedy. He, he said, uh, progress is a nice word, but change is its motivator and change has its enemies. And um, there are people who just do not, want to let go of whatever they're hanging on to. And um, what would you say to local leaders that are worried that if they do what you do, that people are going to complain and, and may even go above their head to the area presidency. And that's another question. Did the area presidency ask you to quit doing what you're doing? No. In fact, I'll tell you what, I had Elder Watkins out. Um, and I just remember these names because this was all part of this thing. And I took him over to meet Pastor Russell as part of our, you know, a lot of times the visiting authority wants to go out and do visits. And I, you know, you're going to get the Long Beach East Steak, you know, <laughs> tour. And I, you know, I, we sat down and met with Pastor Russell. He, he loved it. In fact, I had told him I was bringing out Marcia Navy. He didn't say a word about it. Um, uh, Elder Clayton, Weatherford Clayton came out. Uh, that was the night Scott spoke. And he went up to Midnight Soldiers with us, you know. So um, these brothers, it wasn't like some secret. We were not, we're not, we never operated in a vacuum. You know, Elder Gent was the Area 70 that I most connected with during my service. And he was really kind of uh, there as all these, you know, all this was going on. And he never, you know, he was always very supportive. Um, you know, uh, he had to reach out to Elder Pearson on something once and, or President Pearson, the area president, and he was supportive. So, you know, Elder Holland made a, a comment. I'm not trying to sound like a name drop, and this should things pop into my head. Um, he was out 
early when I got called, we had like an area training and he made a comment, you know, we got to have lunch with him, the state presidents and the wives. And he said that it takes on average two years for the membership to implement whatever changes that they advocated, you know, or, or requested or whatever. And I remember my jaw dropped. I thought two years, you know, who has time for that? You know, it just shocked me. But then I, I realized um, a lot of it is it's not, the resistance doesn't come from above. You know, these brothers, like you said, you get keys. And I, I started to bring this up earlier. You know, you're set apart with keys of authority. You can't get ahead of the brethren because the brethren are the ones giving you the keys. Ultimately, it all comes from God. And if you're following inspiration, you're the right one to be called, then you're doing what you're supposed to do with that delegated authority. <clears throat> At least that's the way I saw it. So I never really felt that because I knew I was following the spirit, um, I didn't worry about what anybody thought. You know, and I think the thing any leader learns, I'm sure as a bishop, you know, you can get inspiration. But if you start thinking about it too much, we can talk ourselves out of anything. You know, you can talk yourself out about calling somebody, well, they're too busy, you know, their lives. Too, you, know, you know, once once that you, you allow yourself to go down that path, <clears throat> you're pretty much, you're done. And you're, you're going to find yourself, at least for me, in the stupor of thought where you never really get out of it. And oftentimes you end up back where you started, which was the right decision. You could have saved yourself a lot of heartache. Um, I love but, the way you involved your wife, too. I remember when I was called... As bishop, that you know, whoever called me said, "Your real first counselor is your wife," and I love the way you know this is you and Darcy. And obviously, you have first you have counselors that you're involved with, and they're part of your stick oh. presidency. But I just love the way you reference your 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 wife, and I think that's helpful for all of us to involve our spouses in our decisions. That's what part of counseling together and getting better. So back to you, um, Emerson. Well, I'd love you to I, get to, and I know you'll get to Scotty Osmond. Yeah, I know. I can go. I, you bring up the point about the wives, though. And the one thing I always thought, because I had a brother ask me, you know, how much do you share with your wife? And look, like, you know, you don't need to get into names and places, but we're gone. At least we used to be. I don't know. I'm hoping the schedule shifts with leadership um, now with the COVID because there's some value at doing these kind of meetings from home, you know, whatever. But you can't be gone all day and come home and see your wife and not let her give her some idea what you're dealing with. You know, that's just wrong. You know, you're gone all day. She's taking care of the house, taking care of the kids, whatever it might be. And then you go home and you keep your mouth shut like you've got some secret. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and so Darcy, because of her life experiences, you know, she worked, you know, she just has some very unique experiences um, from a lot of women. She was very helpful for me um, and helped me see things. So... Uh, anyway, yeah, so I had so that's an important point that any leader needs to take away from this. I ran into no opposition. Um, and maybe it's because we were in Southern California, I don't know, but um, they were uh, very supportive with all this, you know. And then so Mike came out, you remember that night, he had people lined up for an hour and a half. I got emails from people, and this is to your other point, that weren't gay, that didn't have gay family members, that just because he got up and spoke, they felt with their own personal, one gal I know suffered from a lot of depression. She felt like she had a place. Uh, it opened the doors for, every, I mean, sadly, but I think you may even said this to me, one of the, you know, if a gay man is safe in the church, then everybody's got a place. I mean, sadly, but that's, that's it. That's kind of where we are. And um, that's how it went. And so, you know, Mike is just so brave and um, he took a risk and, and nothing gets done without somebody taking a risk. That's what I learned. 
and I, I will share this. Um, I don't know, maybe it's not appropriate, but I, I, you know, because you hear these stories from members and you start believing them that, you know, oh, you're going to get thrown out of the church for doing this. You know, I mean, I had somebody tell me when I got released, I was on some kind of watch list. I'm like, you know, what is this, the CIA? I mean, you know, it's church, dude, you know, and, um, but uh, he, um, uh, what was my point of all this? Oh, was, was I, I had to get to a place where I was willing to accept whatever the consequences were, even if it was that extreme, because I knew what the Lord was inspiring me to do that was not an agenda. Like I said, there was nothing that came to my mind that was there in front of me, I was supposed to do. And so I had to get to a place where I was willing to, you know, sacrifice everything, lay it all on the altar. And as I said, my the leaders came through 100%, always supportive. And of course they would. Because that's, you know, you're following the spirit. What's the, what's the, where's the problem, right? So anyway, then, you know, Scott came along. and Just I know a that comment was, about that state conference. I remember sitting there on the stand speaking Sunday and after listening to Saturday night, I just, the overriding impression to me was the number of lives that were changing the pebble in the pond metaphor. And I looked at all those missionaries. You're, it was just full of missionaries. And I thought that's the time when the Lord talks pretty closely as they're consecrating everything. And I just thought of their future ministry. Some of them are going to um, have LGBTQ kids. Some could be LGBTQ. Some of them would be priesthood leaders. And that state conference experience um, and the experience spirit, most importantly, perhaps the spirit that they felt there, um, teaching them about the doctrine of Christ. To me, that was the long-term impact of that will be for generations what happened that that weekend. And yeah. I don't think you or I will ever understand how many conversations resulted from that meeting and how many lives were changed and how that pebble, those ripples continue to grow and grow. Um, so I, um, anyway, I had, a, I had a brother come up to me actually that had been out there who was out there for work, who was basically steak shopping, <laughs> and came up to me, you know, because you know all the confusion at the end of conference, you know, people come up and you feel that spirit and you want to just hug anybody you can get your hands on. And um, this brother came up to me and said, I, "I just I'm moving to the state. I love the state. I love the spirit inclusion. This is where I want to raise my kids." Exactly. And he moved in. You know, he brought his wife from Ireland, and they came back. She spoke at a conference once, um, not too long ago. In fact, it may have been the last one we had before COVID. Um, but, you know, I got, I realized that the, the job was, once we got Mike, and then it was clear to me, I, you know, this isn't, I'm not worried, worry about the gay community out here. I need to worry about the gay community even here in our state and our wards. And so um, there was that one Sunday where Jeff Perry and I, my old bishop, you know, he was on the high council, decided, you know, he knew Scott. Uh, way back when he was a member, and they said, let's just go visit him. And um, I've said this story so many times, you know, I'm sure people are sitting in it, but there was a parking place right in front of his condo on a Sunday morning in downtown Long Beach. And that's just, that, that's not, that doesn't happen. I mean, it was like literally there for us. And we went, and, you know, I never met him before, and, um, you know, he was there. He was, I think, on, kind of on his way out. And I wanted to invite him, actually, to, um, I think the reason why we went was to invite him to Mike Street is what it was um and because it was kind of an easy you know reason to go see him and we talked and you know scott is just the kindest softest heart you'll ever meet and um 
we just connected and I, you know, listened to him talk a little bit and apologize to him. I just felt compelled to apologize to him for how he did me feel in church. And um, that went a long way. And then he and I met, he said, you know, maybe we can meet and talk sometime. And I don't think, you know, if he expected me to follow up with him or not, um, but I did. <laughs> and he came in and we spoke for like, we had like a three hour meeting. And he just, he had a whole, you know, very organized. He had everything and he just, he just talked. I learned so much listening to him. Um, a lot, and it, it hurt. Um, it, it's probably the one thing that's never been reconciled for me as, a, as, a, as a, in the position of authority in churches, um, how it is that good people can get hurt by other people, whether intentionally or not, you know, and how you reconcile that, because oftentimes it has this, as you, I'm sure, heard from people, long-term impacts, you know, the pain of a leader rejecting somebody like Aiden, you know, it's it's the same thing. That those wounds go real deep. And when people are talking about having trauma going into a church building, um, they're not making it up. You know, it's real. And so to be able to create a place where there was safety in that, you know, to have like I said, my friend Dan Cash teach the lesson today in Tenth Ward, you know, he came back during all this because he's a friend of Scott's. Um, Scott spoke, you know, I asked Elder Clayton, uh, you know, and he said, sure, he knew it wasn't some secret, you know, and so he was up there on the stand. In fact, I had Scott sit next to him because the way it worked out. And, um, you know, he shook his hand. He sent him a beautiful letter of thank you, you know, when, when that, you know, a week or two later. And Scott gave a beautiful talk, you know, and he ran it by me. And that's the kind of relationship that, that needs to be a part of these, you know, when you're doing this kind of work with people is they, you know, Scott trusted me. We went through his talk, right? Gleaned some things out that I just, didn't think would hit the mark um, with, you know, the members, and he was open to it, um, but yet he would still be able to tell his authentic story, and, you know, that was the thing, and so it just, you know, that sort of hammered home, that brought everybody to where um, I think that was the final step in getting people to really open their hearts, you know, it wasn't like a hit and run, you know, this isn't something we're just doing because it's a cause celeb or it's the thing to do. Um, you know, I'm not here to entertain people. We're really trying to change hearts and unite people because all these resentments, all these judgments, that's all the stuff that keeps us from being united and being brothers and sisters, um, you know, in the gospel and being true disciples uh, of Christ. And I can tell you that I was not a guy who cared about a lot of this stuff, honestly, when I got called. I, I wasn't. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like something in my head, okay, we got to bond bridges with the gay community and we gotta connect, you know, do some interface. I mean, it just, the Lord laid it out. We just had to follow it. And um, it was hard, it was hard. And so, you know, kind of to the end of all this, um, I was done, honestly, emotionally from my assignment. You know, I probably shared that with you about a year ago, right before the COVID. And that one um, you'd been in about six or seven years? No, it was actually five. At five the time, years. Not, and, and yet, you did that emotionally. Yeah, you get it, and the inspiration wasn't coming. It was like the Lord almost was kind of just raining the, the thing in. I, I told Elder Cornish that when I got released. Um, I knew I was done. You know, there were some things, you know, administrative stuff that we were able to get done. We got our temple district changed from Los Angeles to Newport because it really makes more sense and little things like that at the end. But um, I was emotionally spent um, because, you know, when you, and then we had we also had a, a group for divorced women that came up. You know that was another thing. I learned a lot about how 
you know, this is the silent group with no voice a lot of times when there's these breakups in church and, you know, um, it's hard. There's just, there's a lot of pain. Um, and, and, you know, when you talk about bearing burdens, which is what we're commanded to do, the covenant we make as members, um, if you're really, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm some great guy, it's just when you actually go in and do it, whoever you are, it's emotionally draining. I, honestly, it's just, I was spent. And so um, being released uh, last month, two months ago, three months ago, it was, it was absolutely the right time. In fact, truthfully, it could have happened a year before. Um, but uh, anyway, but the work was done. I, I, I appreciate you know, I, being honest. I think a lot of leaders are emotionally spent. And um, I, I, I got therapy as a YSA bishop the last year. It was only three years Simon Emerson. And the last year I finally started to meet with a therapist because I was just so emotionally, my gas tank was so low because of the complicated situations and just the toll. And I think that's a real thing that happens. And so that was just a three-year window. And But as stake president for a nine-year window um, with the kind of things you're doing, and I'm sure there's other leaders that probably feel the same way you do. And so I appreciate just being vulnerable and honest and that's just who you are, and that makes it all safe for us to be vulnerable and honest to you, because you are. Um, talk about Scotty. What is Scotty's assignment in your stake? Oh, so he, Scott, is called um, to be the stake young men's secretary. Um, this was probably uh, last summer, I think. And um, he accepted, and the young men's president at the time, which I think he's been changed now, although he's still in leadership on the high council. But um, he was actually the guy who came up to me and said, I'm moving my family into the state. He called him. Wow. He called him to be the secretary. And, um, you know, he saw the value kind of, as you mentioned, with Scott, with Mike, you know, there's value in having that voice because whether anybody wants to admit it or not, um, you know, there are members who are gay, there are youth who are gay, and it can be, as I've learned, a very difficult place for youth to be um, and feel like they can be their genuine self. So, so Scotty, leadership so, like that can help. Um, listeners, I just, there's so much of this story, and that's why you've got to listen to Scotty Osmond's podcast, 162, Michael Secrets, 168. But you went on a Sunday morning to Scotty's home. The administrative load for a stake present, from what I would know, is that you're just all day in your building or if you're in a geographic tight area going between buildings. And the fact that you and Jeff Perry, I think, said, we're just, you know, we have this list of members and we're just going to leave the building right now and go to Scotty's door. And then Scotty, as he shares in the podcast, was guarded. But has a great heart and he just sensed pretty quickly you were a safe person to hear his story and you just heard his story and you just loved him and i think he prayed at the state conference when you were released if i've got my facts right i think he mentioned that but one day you know when he's called in the stake young men's presidency it was just during COVID, and so each member of the stake young men's presidency in your stake did a youtube and they all spoke as you know and I listened to all, all of those, and I listened to Scotty, and I just, and he talked about being gay. And I just thought of that 15 year old kid in your stake who's gay, or 13 or 17, and wondering if there's a place for them. And there's no 
LGBTQ people and senior leadership of the church that I'm aware of. They probably are, but they're not talking about it. And so it's hard to know where your belong is. But to see that video of Scotty and, you know, that 15 or 17-year-old kid could be suicidal just thinking, how to, you know, I just don't feel like I belong. There's not people like me at church. And I just thought, you know, it's just a miracle. It's a miracle what happened on that Sunday morning to what yeah. to where Scotty is in a in a stake young men's presidency. And sometimes we'll put gay Latter-day Saints, my experience, we want to keep them away from the youth because some way that, you know, could influence them to be gay. But I think as I share in the book, and you understand, I think a lot of our listeners, being around gay people doesn't make you gay. <laughs> um and it isn't contagious. <laughs> um so I think we're mature enough to realize that having Scotty in that presidency is just wonderful. And if you're a straight young man in your stake, the preparation of having Scotty in your stake helps you when you've got a gay companion, when you've got a gay kid down the road, when you're teaching an LGBTQ investigator, you have just more tools because you're just, you're not in this bubble. And and that's one of the blessings, I think, that's been created in your stake. And is everything, listeners, that President Fersh has done and the stake leadership team there is scalable. It's not like they have a magical secret handbook that, you know, did this. They just acted on their impressions to create Zion, and they had support of their leaders. Um, and our leaders are talking. If there's any need to, you know, we can go back to Elder Ballard's Mar April twenty. 21 talk and he just talked about half the membership of the church is single the adult membership and we use the word belonging multiple times but to me it's sort of taking president ballard's talk and this is how you do it i mean this is the application of creating a feeling of belonging and that if you're a divorced woman or a gay latter-day saint or somebody has battled addiction or somebody that doesn't have a and I know the church is true with every fiber of my being testimony, you belong and you're needed in the East Long Beach stake. And that to me, then that belonging isn't the final finish line. The belonging then creates the ability to connect with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the healing nature of the atonement. Um, as our hearts change and we feel that love. So I'm, I got off a little tangent there, Emerson, but I'll send it back to you. Well, um, for more thoughts. I, well, we yeah, we kind of covered. I want to share an email with you. I think we talked about that. Good. It really kind of encompasses really what got accomplished. Um, and then maybe I'll just say a last thing, unless you have another question. But no, that's good. Um, and I, I just don't want to forget. Thank you, Richard. Um, you know, I know you and I have had some calls here and there. I've interrupted you in some Dodger games just to connect because. <laughs> anybody that's blazing a trail, you know, the road less traveled, so to speak, um, it can be lonely at times. You know, True. It's like you're on an island. And um, it's good to, you know, connect and just get that support because as much as you can feel that confirmation and that truth, the spirit of truth pushing you and guiding you in a direction, um, you know, we're human and often it's, it's easy to feel like maybe, you know, insecure at times. So that's honest. Um, I feel the I same wanna, way. Want, yeah. <laughs> So I've appreciated that immensely from you. Um, and so this, uh, I got permission from this, this uh, 
sister in our state to share this. I'll leave her name out. She wrote a letter to Darcy, and I think I'll just read the whole thing, at least for most of it here, because I, I don't think I could summarize any better. And this is, uh, I should also say, uh, the only isn't the only email that's like this that I've got in cards from people. Um, it was a very transformative period of time in our state. And again, I'm just grateful I was able to be there and listen uh, and have people around me, like my wife and uh, the guys I served with, for the most part, that supported me. Um, so she starts off, uh, beautiful Darcy. <laughs> I was thinking about you and remembering how many times your husband said that you were the inspiration to him during his service as state president and reaching out to the LGBTQ members. I can't begin to express my gratitude to you for doing that. It was life changing for me. Now this is really an important part of to, to the transition here or the transformation. I had absolutely no love in my heart for the LGBTQ community. Everything I had read and learned in the church helped me to believe that their lives were sinful, repulsive, and completely their choice. You and your husband's invitation, in parentheses, along with Richard Oslo, who I'm so grateful you invited to speak to us in that state conference, um, in parentheses, you and your husband's invitation to listen to our LGBTQ members took me on a soul-searching journey that broke my heart. I had prayed for the pure love of Christ like Moroni had instructed, but didn't begin to understand what that meant. The Savior's love is so pure and boundless that there was no way that prayer could be realized. My heart was just too small. I went through emotional and mental anguish trying to understand what the Spirit wanted to teach me. What I learned was that I could hardly begin to comprehend the Savior's love for each person. I was shocked and ashamed at how judgmental I really was, but hopeful that with God's help, my eyes would be able to see them loving, blessing, guiding, healing all of his children. This came at such a critical time in my life. I was also struggling with loving some of my own children who were taking different faith paths. But with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, I was now able to see and love them. And then she goes on to add some compliments about my wife and her uh, talks and other lessons she taught from time to time. And, um, that's it. You know, that's, that's the change that Paul talks about and tries to teach us that, that transformation. And um, I'm, you know, like I said, we, we in the beginning, we bring... Um, you know, we get blessed in these calling. We bring something to the table. I guess for me, I thankfully with a strong wife and good friends like you and others and people who are willing to take risks, um, we're able to have that moral courage it takes to change things. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for my assignment because Richard, I've really, like this woman shared, um, I've really learned what, I've learned the character of Christ and um, I really enjoyed studying his words in particular. Um, you know, I dug into the parables probably for two, three years straight to really find the, you know, the deeper meanings that are there, which are many. Christ is just, he's just so brilliant. Aside from being our savior, he's just a brilliant teacher. There's layers and he's consistent. You can't take his words and twist them around. The way he teaches, they are what they are. And, he loves us, you know, and it gets back to that that symbol that President Nelson felt inspired to to put on as a representative of the church, those open arms. That's it. What else is there? You know, it's the parable of the, the prodigal son. You know, he goes out, it's like me in a lot of ways. He goes out, lives this riotous life, he comes back, 
He doesn't even get a chance to open his mouth and repent before the father's got his arms around him. He's putting a ring on his finger, a robe around him, and shoes on his feet. He hasn't even repented yet, and he's already been welcomed back because the father knows the heart. The Savior knows our heart. And um, that's the beauty of all this. And, and I, what I learned is people respond to that. They respond to that truth because it testifies to them here deep inside. And of course, you know, it's on us to all be open-minded to it. But um, I'm grateful for leaders, like I said, Albert Ghent uh, in particular, um, was very supportive. And um, I'm grateful that people uh, just were willing to take risks. I, you know, I've said that a few times, but none of this would have happened and um, I'm thankful for things I've learned. I'm grateful I've had a chance to serve. And um, anyway, I don't, I don't want to say I love the Savior. I love Jesus Christ. I love the feeling I have when I really feel like um, I, I've, you know, been able to get a little glimpse of that lonely path that He had to walk. You know, we get a little glimpse of that in a lot of different ways in our lives as parents. Um, and oftentimes in these type of callings, but to be able to have the honor of of, of being entrusted with this kind of a mission. Um, and, and then, of course, the, the blessings that come from it, as hard as it, it was. Um, I've made some lifelong friends, you know, Scott and I, and Mike, and you, and others. Um, you know, you guys are lifelong friends to me now. And uh, anyway, I'm just grateful for it. I've been known to ramble, so I'm going to clip it and leave it at that. <laughs> well, um, that's great, um, Emerson Fersh. And on behalf of all the Long Beach East Stake listeners that would want to put their arms around you and thank you again for what you've done and all the people um, beyond the borders of your stake, um, thank you for um, living and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing hope and healing. And I'm your dear friend and I'm so grateful you were on the podcast. And I think our joint invitation for all of you is to just act on, you don't have to be me. You don't have to be President Fersh. Um, just do what you can do um, to apply the principles that you heard in this podcast and act on the impressions that you've heard. It's just one heart at a time. Um, if you would like to reach Emerson Fersh, his email is in the podcast description, and I'll give it to you now, E-M-E-R-S-O-N dot F-E-R-S-C-H at Outlook.com. Listeners, before we sign off, we wanted to add four tributes to President Fersh. President Fersh is not aware this is going to be part of his podcast, but I felt impressed to reach out to members of his stake and have them add um, short tributes. And so these four tributes will be as follows, and they will conclude the podcast. The first three are from Gay Latter-day Saints that are members of President Fersh's stake who are, have been influenced for good in significant ways. We've talked about two of them in the podcast. The first one will be Scott Osmond, episode 162, if you want to hear Scott's full story. The next one will be from Mike Sechrist, and he was on episode 168. And the third one will be Brother um, Dan Cash, who, who has a wonderful tribute also. And our fourth and final tribute will be from a current bishop in the Long Beach East Stake, Brother Don Carruth from the Los 
Los Alamitos Ward. Richard, thank you for letting me say a few words in tribute to Emerson's amazing former leadership as state president of the Long Beach East Stake. And I'm so grateful and excited to hear this podcast. I try to explain how special Emerson is to people who haven't met him or who haven't had the opportunity to be part of his mission of inclusion. And it's darn near impossible to explain or comprehend. But I challenge anyone to do any one of the four things that I found to be groundbreaking in his leadership. And the four are, one, breaking cultural norms, two, acceptance of self and others, three, finding beauty in diversity, and four, spiritual guidance and following the spirit. So first is breaking cultural norms. Because Emerson wasn't confined to the way we always used to do things in the church, it allowed him the freedom to think outside of those boundaries and to question every single thing we do as members within our church culture. And saying this is the way we have always done it was a chance for Emerson to immediately dismiss that practice as status quo and question how it could be done more effectively or differently in leading us all back to Christ. And you can only imagine how that went over sometimes. If we continue to repeat everything we do in the past, we actively continue to dismiss people on the fringe and we complicitly, if not actively, send messages of exclusion. Second is acceptance of itself and others. Recognizing and being honest with current limitations is important, but it doesn't mean we need to feel threatened by those with different life paths. And Emerson never saw my own life path as a challenge to his own. He never saw it as a challenge to those within his stake. He saw it as a chance to learn and grow. Personal growth. He recognized Christ's example in me and gave me the benefit of all doubt that I was capable of receiving guidance for my own path in life. He allowed the Spirit to confirm these truths and to respect and support my own journey. He also never muted me. He encouraged me to have a voice and to use it whenever possible. He placed me in a stake young men's position to allow me to, church, to teach others who have an open mind to be supportive to LGBTQ people and break free from the cultural norms of the past within our church. The third is finding the beauty in diversity, and diversity allows everyone to have a hero or a heroine. It allows us all to feel seen and heard, and it gives us a frame of reference to use when helping other people understand ourselves. And Emerson understood that, and he did his best to show us that what that diversity looked like and what it felt like. He pushed us to reach out to the homeless and ask them their name. He pushed us to identify better with members who were considered different, singles, divorced members, mental health issues, gay, transgender, all LGBTQ members were invited to share and become a part of the stake and to share their own spiritual journeys. When members were critical of the differences they saw, Emerson unwaveringly defended all of us as part of the world we live in and the right to fair representation and support. He protected vulnerable members by not allowing the majority to force their past norms as the only standards or topics of discussion in meetings. He took hits for pushing limits as long as those new limits allowed others to get closer to Christ. He organized holiday concerts with interfaith uh, churches that allowed us all to sit in one space and to imagine just for a brief time what heaven, love, diversity, and acceptance really and look and feel like. Fourth is spiritual guidance and following the Spirit. Emerson was a leader who chose the difficult paths. He placed openly gay men in state callings. He created um, outreach groups for historically dismissed and discounted members. 
His norms were based on the need for Christ-like love and understanding, not based strictly on doctrine or culture. He was an example to me of when we allow the Spirit to guide us to truth and doctrine rather than allowing doctrine to dictate how or when we should be allowed to fill the Spirit. Emerson understood that normalization of sexual orientations in our church can't happen unless we have frequent discussions about them. We need to daily challenge how we view and exclude people in our everyday. For example, when we report on gender in the church, do we still report male and female only? What's the harm in putting down non-binary, transgender male, transgender female as options? It tells our youth that we have a place for them. We are ready to counsel them and help them come closer to Christ, and we want every one of God's children to feel welcome. There are so many ways in which we as church leaders and members can break these norms down and show the youth we're willing to be as open-minded as they are. I could go on for days about things we could do that would be simple but effective and would fit perfectly within church doctrine. As mentioned by Paul when, we, when he spoke to the Corinthians about putting away childish things, our membership's views on homophobia and transphobia are currently childish things. This church can't grow unless we are willing to put away childish things and become more childlike in our faith and humanity. And Emerson gave me a glimpse of what this church could really look like with true love and respect for everyone. I will forever be grateful for that. But more than anything, I'll be grateful for a friendship that will last more than just this lifetime and for a person who helped me believe even more strongly in our Savior's mission and his atonement and what it means for me personally. Emerson, your wavering support made me feel welcome at the table of Christ. Before I met you, leaders in this church were verbally speaking from pulpits saying that there is a place for me at the table, but offered no action of inclusion to speak up. You were the person who actually found a chair for me to sit in and food for me to eat at the table. You asked me to share my journey at your leadership meetings, state conferences, and award meetings. Thank you for helping me feel heard. I miss and love you, Emerson, and your beautiful wife, Darcy, and incredible son, Ethan, more than you know. And I'm forever, forever grateful for your examples of Christ's love. This is Mike Sechrist in Long Beach, California. It was almost three years ago that I was asking God in prayer whether or not I should go to church in my new stake. The Spirit told me that someone there needed me. I figured at the time that it would be a young person struggling with their sexuality or gender identity, or maybe the parent of an LGBTQ child. But I did what the Spirit told me to do, and never in a million years did I imagine the person I was supposed to meet was my stake president, Emerson Fersh. I'll never forget the power of the Spirit I felt during our first meeting. I don't frequently cry, but I was in tears within the first few minutes of our discussion. I'd never felt so seen and understood and loved by a priesthood leader before. You probably can't understand how that feels unless you've spent a lifetime being misunderstood and made to feel broken and second class by well-intentioned priesthood leaders and other members of the church. The Spirit let me know that I could trust Him. So I went way out of my comfort zone when He asked me to speak at state conference and let everyone know what it was like to grow up as a gay boy in the church. That experience changed my life forever. Then I accepted a calling on the State Communications Committee and began running LGBTQ Family Home Evening and later Ally Nights. 
And suddenly, there was a place for people like me, and a place for loving straight members of the church to come and ask questions and learn how to love and include people different from them. All of us together learned how to be better disciples of Christ. I remember telling President First during our interview for my state calling, you know I plan on marrying a man someday, right? I wanted to be completely honest with him always. And he responded, we can figure that out when the time comes. He never said it in so many words, but the greatest lesson I learned from President Fersh was his example and not to let differences in philosophy, policy, or belief get in the way of loving someone right now, because that's what the Savior would do. Hello, my name is Dan Cash, and I'm a member of the Long Beach 10th Ward in the Long Beach, California East Stake. Emerson Fersh was my bishop, although I was not active uh, during that time. He was also my stake president. In early 2019, he sent me a very thoughtful letter letting me know that he was thinking about me. Later that year, he asked me, an inactive gay Latter-day Saint, to say the closing prayer at the stake's Christmas concert. After some back and forth, I agreed to do so. Later, in early 2020, pre-COVID, Emerson encouraged me to deal with a membership issue that had been hanging over my head for decades. With his help, I did. He showed me kindness and friendship when I never thought I'd get that again from any LDS leader. I am now serving as an elders corps instructor in my ward. Never did I ever think that I'd have a calling in the LDS church again. One of the greatest joys of the past COVID-filled year is a group text that we have going with Scott Osmond, Mike Seacrest, and Emerson. Scott has dubbed us the Homo Council. Emerson's willingness to learn from three gay LDS men is astounding. Scott, Mike, and Emerson are three of the greatest men I know, and they are all heroes to me. I can say without hesitation that Emerson Fersh is a man of God. He lives his life based on Christ's teachings. I have become a better man because of Emerson's leadership, but even more importantly, because of his friendship. God bless Emerson and all the men and women in the church who are trying to understand what it means to be LGBTQ plus and LDS, and who are trying to make sure the church has a place for us to be. Hey, Emerson, this is Don. At first, when Scotty reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to record one of these memos for the, for the podcast? I was thrilled. I'm like, yeah, I'm all in. Uh, but kind of when it got down to recording it, and you think, hey, how am I going to sum up a, a faith journey I've been on the last uh, seven or eight years with you? Uh, it's really kind of tricky if you're going to do it in just a minute or two. And I'm going to fumble through this as best as I can. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but about eight years ago or seven years ago, when you first got made uh, stake president, came over to our house with Darcy and we had dinner together. And I remember you're sitting in the living room couch and I asked you, I said, hey, now that you're stake president, what do you think's different? What's changed in the stake? And in true Emerson fashion, you weren't about to answer the question. You kind of hopped up and stared right at me and, and said, hey, what do you think's changed? <laughs> Caught me off guard. And I think my answer was pretty weak. And so let me, let me answer that for you, you know, seven or eight years later. Um, if you had asked me back, you know, when we're sitting on that couch, if I, uh, if I, if I loved my neighbor, I would have said, yeah, of course. Yeah, second commandment, that's an easy one to keep. I, I don't have any animosity towards anyone. And I would have been genuine in that answer. And, uh, you know, from that time, you started putting me in front of some of these wonderful and dear and just kind, uh, 
gay members of our church and, and, and not of our church and, and, and then on to some, some wonderful transgender people with these beautiful souls and uh, some of the, the walls that were in my heart started cracking and I didn't know that they were there. And as I kind of look back on where I'm at, uh, you know, seven, eight years later, um, I, I, my answer to that question is so much different. I, I, I know with that second commandment, there's so much more about loving your neighbor it has nothing to do with the lack of lack of animosity, but so much more of a, a genuine Christ-like love. And I've felt Christ in that journey. I felt his love and my own hard-heartedness cracking. And again, a you know, a, a repentant process that I, I didn't even know I needed to go through. So anyways, my friend, I'm, I'm sure you're going to go and, and change and mix up a bunch of things up there in Utah too, but please know that uh, I'm grateful for all those experiences I've been through. And I'm grateful for this wonderful community that I, that I hold dear to my heart now. Um, thank you for that. And, and God bless my friend. Mm-hmm. 